Up oh, there it is. There, there it is. <laughs> okay, Psalm 105. 119, 105. Yeah, there we go. Okay. None. Which could mean seed, continue, air, sun. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Observe my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth. Teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hand, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. To the very end. Okay, I got a prayer request here. You remember Scott Dewey? He's been here a few times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had a heart attack. I didn't even know. Yeah, he's over it now, but he's still recovering. He had 95 to 99 percent blockage in all four arteries. So, yeah, he's uh, he's uh, yeah, he's fortunate to be alive, but he's recovering, and his mom, Mean Jean, is taking good care of him. So. There you go with Scott. And then uh, I didn't know that my friend Kim, she's out in Missouri, had uh, hip surgery. And so uh, uh, I just didn't realize she said it was coming, but I didn't know that it was behind her. So uh, she's recovering. We'll have her in prayer as well. Did you say and, mean Jean? Yes. Yes. That's what he calls her, mean Jean. And then um, before we get into uh, prayer, we want to make sure everybody knows that we will not be here next Thursday because we'll be sitting at dinner tables eating turkey. So next Thursday with no Bible class. But let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you so much for the chance to come and pray for these people. And uh, the others that have been mentioned over the past week, we just got a whole line of people that we mentioned last Thursday and Sunday. And uh, so we just leave them in your hands, Lord, and we ask that you tend to their uh their needs and their sicknesses and their uh, looking for uh, work and all those type of things. And Lord, we just ask that you bless this time here tonight. And uh, we're in the last chapter of the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. And we just thank you for this marvelous book and all that it's detailed. And we look forward to 2 Corinthians in a couple weeks. And we just thank you, Lord, for this wonderful word, this precious word that you've given us. And we, we just thank you for it. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> I'm going to read that. I'm going to read uh, November. Oh, I said the 24th, and that's on Sunday. So today is the 21st. Let's see. I didn't pre-read this one, so I hope it's okay. What would it be like to live by faith, telling your needs only to God and to no one else? God leads different people in different ways, but he had led George Mueller to trust him for everything in life and to let his needs be known to God alone. Mueller was born in Prussia in 1805, and though he trained for the Lutheran ministry, he led a degenerate life of petty thievery, once spending three weeks in jail. When he was a young man of 20, a friend invited him to a private home where on Saturday evenings there was prayer, hymn singing, Bible reading, and the reading of a printed sermon, since it was illegal in Prussia for laymen to explain the scriptures. Just hearing about such a gathering intrigued him. <clears throat> the meeting both puzzled and thrilled Mueller. He realized that even though he was not much better educated than the others present, he could not pray as eloquently as these simple tradesmen. That night, Mueller went home feeling that he had found what he was seeking. God had begun a work of grace in his heart, and he went to sleep peaceful and happy in Jesus. God continued to work in his life, and in 1829, Mueller went to London for training to be a missionary to the Jews. 
upon meeting some of the first Plymouth Brethren, a group of Christians who functioned without a paid clergy, Mueller became convinced of their teachings. Over the next few years, he entered, uh, ministered at several Plym Plymouth Brethren chapels in England. Earlier in his life, while a student in Hull, Germany, Mueller had observed the orphanages that August Frank, the German pietist, had begun in 1696. Through the years, he thought about founding an orphanage, but it was on November 21st, 1835, after reading a book about Frank's life, that he felt God's definitely leading beyond the mere idea to a firm resolve to start an orphanage in Bristol, England. He immediately asked God for a building, funds to support it, and godly people to operate it. His orphanage was operational within five months and remained the major project of his life. George Mueller continually trusted God for the daily operations of the orphanage. November 21st, 1838, three years after his decision to start the orphanage, is a case point. On this particular day, there was not a single half penny in the orphanage's coffers to buy bread for the evening meal. At one o'clock, Mueller prayed with his staff for their daily bread and told them that they must wait and see how the Lord would see fit to meet their need. Feeling that he needed some exercise, Mueller went out for a walk. On his way back, about 20 yards from his house, he met a Christian brother who gave him five pounds for the orphans. God put Mueller in the right place at the right time to meet the man who made the donation. Exactly one year later, on November 21st of 1839, his journal provides another illustration of living by faith. On that same day, some small contributions were received at the orphanage, enough for the next day's breakfast, but not enough for the next dinner. Miller described the day's staff meeting in his journal, our comfort is the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Matthew 6, 34. We separated very happy and God, though very poor and our faith much tried. Two and a half hours before dinner the next day, a large box arrived at the orphanage with a generous contribution and some value, valuable articles that could be sold. The joy of George Mueller and his fellow workers was indescribable as God had once more provided for his orphans. And they asked, to what extent do you live by faith? Just as we were saved by faith, so we are to live by faith. George Mueller's life exemplifies what it means to trust God for one's daily needs. Just as we are to trust God for our salvation, we are also to trust him for the specifics of life. Examine your life to determine the areas in which you need to put living by faith into practice. And they cite 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we, by, we live by believing and not by seeing. Good stuff there. I, uh, I uh, had heard that story once before, and uh, they actually gave thanks for the meal before it came, and it did, in fact, arrive. So that's uh, pretty wonderful. I, you know, that's uh, Tom, one of my friends that I go to mission work with. Oh, he's back there, isn't he? he uh, he'll tell the people downtown, he says, you know, the Lord's not going to give you everything you want, but he will provide everything you need. And that's a fact. If you put him first in life, he's going to take care of your needs. Um, let's see here. Uh, I said next Thursday we are not doing anything here, so we got that out of the way. And we're in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. No reason to back up. <laughs> What's that? No reason to back up. I don't, no reason to back up. But now we got some people before you start. Where are you all from? I... Me. Who? Us? Yeah. Oh, um, we're from here. We're in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Oh, it's good to have you here. What, what are your names? 
Suzanne. Crockett and Suzanne. Well, it's good to have you here. You. Welcome to you. All right. Oh, they're the young folks at the old folks home. Okay, there you go. The young folks at the old folks home. Gotcha. All right. Last 16. Walker. Hold on to that. Walker. Oh, okay. Grace family. Oh, gotcha. All right. Good deal. All right. Okay. 16 1. Now, about the collections for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Okay, well, that was nice and short. I hadn't even opened the thing because I was thinking something else. I got the four things going on. I'm forgetting something and it bothers me. So until it comes out, probably when I'm lying in bed at one o'clock tonight, I'll be. All right, let me read that again. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have. Yes, okay. It's just as exactly as you read it, so I won't go any further. All right, chapter 16 begins with a new thought, which Paul is carefully placed after the great hope of the believer the resurrection. That was all the last chapter, marvelous stuff. Wow, what a great chapter of the Bible. He has given many instructions so far in this epistle concerning doctrine. He will continue this in part during this chapter, but it will also be a final chapter of greetings and exhortations. And so he begins with, now concerning the collection for the saints. In the Greek, there is an article before the word collection, okay? It's the collection, which indicates that it is an issue which he had previously mentioned to them. It is not just any collection, but the collection, meaning something that had been talked about in the past. The word for collection is logea and is found only here and in the next verse in all of the New Testament. It means a collection, a collecting of money, especially of an irregular local contribution for religious purposes. This collection was necessary for those in Jerusalem. We saw that when we were back in the book of Acts. They, they all fit into place very well with what's going on right here. Who were suffering deprivation because of persecution and because of the unstable political and religious climate of the times. The word for the saints also gives an indication that this was a previously discussed matter. All believers are saints, but these have been singled out, which means that those in Corinth already understood who was being spoken of. Once again, all believers, if you're a believer and saved in Christ, you are a saint, okay? There's not a litany of saints that includes a few people over the past few hundred years that popes have picked out, okay? That's an error in uh, theology. Saints is everybody in Christ. Paul continues with, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia. In fact, this collection from Corinth and other appeals for those in Jerusalem are found noted at various points, as I just said, in the book of Acts. It's also in Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and Galatians chapter 2. It was a matter which Paul felt was of the highest importance. As the apostle to the Gentiles, he wanted them to understand the necessity of providing for the physical needs of the saints from which came their spiritual heritage. This is explicitly stated in Romans 15, 27. Take you there really quickly. Romans, <clears throat> I should not have drank that water. It is pleased, it pleased them indeed, and they are debtors, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. That's exactly what we're talking about right here in the end of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> yeah, I drink that bottled water and it always makes me, I don't know. Let's see here. So finally, this verse finishes with, so you must also do. He's instructed the other churches, so you must also do. The word translated as do also is in the aorist imperative active. 
the implication in this is that they must do it and they are to do it immediately. It is something of great importance and of great necessity. Life application, Paul felt the burden of contributing to the physical needs of those who brought the spiritual message of Christ to the Gentiles. Today, each of us receives spiritual food from pastors and teachers, and it is right and proper that we should also endeavor to help them in their physical needs as well. Often church budgets pay their salaries, but it is good to be attentive to their other needs that may exist in their lives beyond the paycheck. They are ministering to you for your good. So remember to return the blessing to them for their good. 16 tip. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I arrive, that when I come, no collections will have to be made. All right, almost identical here, a little bit different, but 16.2, care needs to be given concerning this verse so that it is kept in its intended context. It is true that by this time, the Lord's Day or Sunday was considered the first day of the week and a time when believers gathered together in worship. That's found, for example, way back in Acts 20, verse 7. Let me read you that right here. It says... Now on the first day of the week, <clears throat> when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And you remember the story there. He talked and talked and talked, and he had the boy in the uh, window, and he finally fell asleep, and out he went. And they, they uh, picked him up alive after they picked him up dead. Now, the reason why, if you go to that particular uh, passage in Acts, is it's very specific. It says that there are lampos in the... Uh, the house. And what that means is there were lamps that were burning to give light. And so he's at the window. It wasn't that Paul bored him to death. He's at the window and all of the heat and, and fumes are exhausting right by him. And so the point is that he was just overcome and he just, they put him to sleep and out he went. So it wasn't Paul that bored him. Anyway, you know, that's, but they make a point of saying that the, they're the lamps in there to let you know that's what occurs. So, um, let's that see. That's a preacher's point of view. Yeah, that's a preacher's point of view. That's right. Although I've seen Burke sleeping in Bible class a couple times. So. Well, if he fell asleep with, under Paul, no preacher ever needs to be embarrassed. There, there you go. There you go. It is also noted in later in Revelation 1, verse 10, with the name, the Lord's Day. He was there praying on the Lord's He was in the Spirit, it says, on the Lord's Day. However, this verse in 1 Corinthians 16 says in the Greek, on the Sabbaths. The wording is generally considered to follow a Hebrew idiom which would then be comparable to the next day after the Sabbath, okay? Because you get these Hebrew roots people in there and they will twist what it says in the Greek and they will say, see, you're supposed to be worshiping on Saturday and blah, 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 blah. You, it, you have to be very careful to understand the context of what is being said and, and it has to be interpreted properly. It's on the Sabbath, which means the day after the Sabbath, okay? Or the second day, at, let's say, yeah, the day after the Sabbath. The idea is that one, when, when one has their paycheck from the previous week, on that day is when the action is to be taken. On whatever day this occurred, it is the principle of what Paul gives to those at Corinth that is important. The word translated here as on the has the sense of every. Therefore, Paul is asking each of the Corinthians to lay something aside every week at that time. The implication here is that they were to set aside money either at home or some trusted place, specifically for a collection that Paul would be taking. 
Rather than getting to Corinth and finding out that the people were lousy savers and had to take a portion of whatever they had available at the time, he was asking that they make a purposeful effort to put something aside for a specific reason. He didn't want to get there and have a one-time collection that would fail to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And elsewhere he talks about this, how these people have promised something and he doesn't want them to be embarrassed by it. And he says it to, you know, several times throughout his epistles and in the uh, book of Acts. He's planned things out, he's going down there, and he doesn't want to get there and find out that people aren't prepared. Okay, and so he's being specific about this. As far as the amount to be let, laid aside, here's an important point for people that push tithing. He only gives general guideline, storing up as he may prosper, okay? There's nothing in the New Testament anywhere outside of Jesus rebuking the Pharisees for setting aside their tithe and saying it in a negative connotation, and then the tithe being explained in the book of Hebrews. There's nothing in the epistles, which are church-age doctrine, to support the practice of tithing. But if you are going to support the practice of tithing, I know I've said it five million times Go back and read what tithing is from the Old Testament. It is one-tenth every third year. That's correct. That's Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Deuteronomy 26, verse 12, and Hosea 4, verse, or Amos, yeah, Amos 4, verse 4. Okay. Once every three years, they would set aside their tithe. The other two years, the tithe was set aside, and what did they do with it? They used it. They went down to Jerusalem. They had a big party. They bought whatever they wanted for their family, and they celebrated in the presence of the Lord. If you've never been told that before, please understand that tithing is, one, not a New Testament precept. It's a part of the law of Moses, which is what? Set aside, obsolete, and annulled in Christ, Hebrews uh, 7, 18, 8, 13, and uh, 10, 9. Okay? Set aside, annulled, and obsolete in Christ, and it is nailed to the cross, Colossians 2, 14. The law is done. Okay, the law is finished. So it's an Old Testament precept. And even if you went by the Old Testament, they set aside one third every uh, whatever years. Now, of course, uh, people always email me about this one after I say this and they say, well, what about the law of first mention? And I addressed that in a sermon not too long ago. The law of first mention is not a law. It's not even something that can be inferred from Scripture. And I went through and I cited all the times that if you were to apply, the reason why they came up with the law of first mention is because uh, Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And see, that sets a precedent. That's the first mention. And so we have to tithe. And then they say, of course, that uh, um, Jacob promised 10% if he brought him back safely to the land from which he was leaving, which it never says that he did anything with it. It never says anything beyond that. It was just a promise he made. But if you take the law of first mention, that means that if your uh, brother dies, you have to go in and uh, sleep with his wife so that she has a child in your name because that predates the law of Moses. And I could go through a bunch of them that you would not want to be doing. Okay. The law first mentioned was simply something that somebody made up to justify tithing because that person knew what the Old Testament tithing standard was from Deuteronomy 14. So this is about the only description of what you are to do in the New Testament as far as giving. Store up as you may prosper. And then um, Paul says elsewhere that you are to be a cheerful giver. If you're told that you have to tithe, you are being told to violate a precept that Paul has given in the New Testament because nobody is cheerful giving a tithe when they have to do it. If they want to do it, that's fine. If you want to give 10%, give 10%. If you want to give 50%, go ahead. Whatever makes you happy. But if you're being told you have to do something, then you're violating Paul's prescriptive command to be a cheerful giver. So 
that, that's enough of that. But if you want to see the sermon, I've got one from back in Genesis. I've got one from uh, in the book of the ending. I think it was chapter 28 of Leviticus. And we'll have one more tithing sermon in Deuteronomy 14, and I'll never do it again. Okay. Actually, I might mention it again because in Deuteronomy 26 and Amos 4.4, but I, it's done. If people email me and they want to know about the tithing, I just send them the link to the one that I did. And I say, listen, okay, that's, don't be pushed around in what you give. You give from your heart because you love the Lord Jesus and you think that whatever ministry you're going to is worth giving to. Oh, I know what I was thinking of talking about that. Uh, we're talking about needs and the Lord meeting every need. The Superior Word Church in Kenya is still trying to raise funds to build their church. They need like a lot of money and uh, it's going to take a long time at the rate that they're making it, you know, uh, going out and asking people in the neighborhood and stuff. So somebody I heard just gave a very nice contribution to them uh, a week or so ago, but it's, it's just a dent in what they need. They're, they're working to build their church. They have enough for the property and the building is going to take some time. But if you would like to give to them over in Kenya, they, uh, they uh, have ministries, orphanages, and all kinds of things they do over there, but they also do need to have a building that they can worship in. So that's what I wanted to say. Okay, so here we go. Um, uh, uh, he didn't uh, one-time collection. As far as the amount to be laid aside, he only gives the general guideline, as I said, storing up as you may prosper. There's no you must give 10% or you need to give until it hurts or any other such intimidation that you may have heard in a sermon at some point. The amount was solely up to the discretion of the believer based on how he felt that the Lord had prospered him. That was it. And he gives the reason for the specific weekly setting aside of this money. It is so that no collections will be made when I come. Okay, that's he gives the reason there. Paul wanted this gift from the Corinthians to be ready and to be an amount suitable for the purpose for which it was intended. By asking them to follow the guidelines, there would be no shortfall and there would be no pain in the giving. Paul's intent was that the needs be met and that it occurred from a grateful heart. Further, he wanted no one to say that they had been pressured into giving. You can read that all through the subtle hints and the way that he writes. And it's like when he addresses uh, Philemon about Onesimus. He doesn't ever pressure him. He does kind of bully him around a little bit, but he doesn't actually pressure him. He says, I want you to do this out of your own, you know, choice. But the Old Testament standard of tithing was not considered in this request, and it is never considered in the New Testament, I should say under the New Covenant, because as I said, it is considered Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. You give 10% of your tithe and mint and common, but you forget the greater matters of the law, okay? The more weighty matters of the law. So he mentions tithing there. Hebrews explains tithing only to make a theological point about Levi being in the loins of Abraham, which you could make that point with anything. He just happens to do it by using Abraham giving 10% to Melchizedek and the fact that Levi received tithes from the people and the priests received their tithes from Levi. And he says, goes up through there and he says, see, it's, it's basically saying the doctrine of being in your ancestor. And you can infer from that based on the words of uh, David and elsewhere in the Bible, original sin, because you are in your ancestor. I am in my father, Cope Garrett. He's in his father, Thomas Garrett. And he's in, go all the way back to Adam and we are in Adam. And that's the point that we made in the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. We need to move away from Adam and we need to move to Christ. And without doing that, we are going to remain separated from God forever, filled with our sin. 
So anyway, that's kind of the point that's being made there in Hebrews, but we'll get to that in a few weeks. We'll be done. Well, it might be longer in a couple weeks, but we'll get there eventually. Okay, so um, let's see here. Paul wanted this gift from the Corinthians. I said that to be ready. Further, if you have been told to tithe, oh, you know, I, here I say it, and then I get ahead of myself in this because it's an issue that really makes me just, anyway, um, if you've been told to tithe, you've probably been misguided on what tithing actually entailed from the Old Testament. Um, uh, I, I'll just skip that paragraph because I've already given it to you. Life application, giving is vital to the continuance of the church and for meeting its goals and expenses. However, it should never be done under compulsion and it should be from a New Testament perspective. Do not let pastors, televangelists, or anybody else shame you into giving. Give from a grateful heart from out of what you have been given. And I will go on and say further that if you're not giving out of a grateful heart, then you're giving for all the wrong reasons and you're probably not going to get any reward from the Lord anyway. That's why okay. the 501c3 thing just makes me nuts. Like, oh, yeah. So you would only put your money into the basket if you knew that you were going to get going to get something back out of it. You're going to get a tax break back out of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, but you know that tax break is our not. whole system is set up that way. I mean, if you give to you know some non-Christian organization, it's the same thing. I want my tax break. Well, then where's where's the heart in that? You know, yeah, that's very well said. Okay, sixteen three. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Okay, this one says, send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. They have to bear it. Okay, over the years, translators have chosen one of two main ways of translating this particular verse. The first would be as the New King James Version and others render it. The second would be as Jim just read it, the NIV and others render it. Side by side for comparison, they read, one, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. Two, when I arrive... I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. The Greek could go either way, but the likely rendering is the word your, is inserted by translators in the New King James Version because they have opted for the first view. Because of this, it could be misleading unless one knows that it is actually an inserted word. At other times, Paul gave notes of recommendation concerning individuals such as in Romans 16, verse 1. Or he referred to letters of recommendation as a means of confirming authority or status, which is found, for example, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. He is the apostle with the authority concerning the matter. And it is his letter which would be received in the light which it is needed for such a gift to the saints. Therefore, Paul has asked those in Corinth to set aside money weekly. After his arrival, the money would be collected and counted. Those in Corinth would select men considered honorable and capable of taking the money to Jerusalem. And Paul would send a letter of introduction concerning the gift. This line of reasoning will become more obvious when the next verse is looked at. It could be that translators and scholars who hold the first view have been concerned that there is a letter written by Paul which had been lost and not recorded in the Bible. However, this is a non-starter. The Bible refers to other communications by writers of the Bible which are not included in its pages. Everything written by a prophet or apostle which is in the Bible is inspired and a part of the Word of God. But not everything written by a prophet or apostle was inspired by God. Right, okay. Finally, the word for gift here literally means 
grace. Such is the nature of a gift for ministering to others. Such gifts should be without compulsion and they should be without strings attached. Okay, that goes both ways. It's without compulsion on you. I'm giving this because I want to give it. Nobody forced me to, and it's something that I think I'm going to give to whatever ministry for whatever reason. And then it should be given without any strings attached. If you get mad at that particular ministry a week from now and you say, I'm never going to give to you again, don't tell them. There's no need to tell them that. Just don't give to them again because there should be no strings attached. Either way, no compulsion, no strings attached. Just let, what is the term? Let dying dogs lie, something, whatever. Yeah, no quid pro quo. That's right. All right. Life application. God has ensured that his word has everything necessary to guide us in our walk and instruct us in our theology. We have a reliable witness to his plan of redemption in the pages of the Bible. Good example of that is from the Old Testament. I think the guy's name is Uriah. He's one of these prophets that went down and he prophesied not a word that he said is ever recorded. But it's very clear that it was the word of the Lord. I think it, uh, I, I don't want to misquote it and say the wrong thing, but there are instances where you'll see that in the Bible. Somebody prophesies something, it's not written down what they said, and yet we have everything we need in Scripture. God has included in his word what we need. Okay, 16.4. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Okay, so he's not forcing himself on this at all. He's not in any way pressuring them. He's just saying, this is for these people to take down. And if you want me to go, I will go. He's making sure that everything is hands off by his part. So that they can't say he forced them. They can't say that he took anything. He's being very careful about this. In the previous verse, Paul mentioned that brothers from Corinth should be selected to carry their gift to Jerusalem. He also mentioned letters of approval to accompany them, evidencing apostolic authority in the matter. However, if the gift were of a sufficient size to warrant a personal visit by Paul, he would accompany them as well. This would be to highlight the exceptional generosity of the Gentiles towards the saints in Jerusalem. No matter what, though, Paul would not consider taking the money by himself without some from Corinth to accompany it. This was a safeguard in several ways. There were factions in Corinth, which we saw back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. These people are division. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of all these different things, okay? And those who opposed were opposed to him could make unfounded claims against him. There were also many enemies which Paul had made in Jerusalem when he converted to Christ. In order to ensure that the entire process was kept above reproach, it was necessary for brothers in Corinth to be a part of this traveling party. It is seen in Romans 15.25 that Paul did go with them when the gift was finally prepared. It is also noted in Acts 20 verse 4 that delegates from Corinth went as well. In all, Paul made an exceptional example for others to follow. When matters of such importance are concerned, every detail is to be kept above reproach. Hang on, let me make a note right here on something. Life application, the Lord showed in the parable of the unjust steward, which is Luke 16, that we are to be trustworthy with earthly riches. If we fail at this, then how can we be trusted with true riches? Let us take this to heart and remember that we have a responsibility to honesty in all matters because we bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main thing that we need to remember there is that we bear the Lord's name. All right. Okay. Go ahead. Next uh, five. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. 
Okay, he is going through Macedonia. At some point, Paul had sent a letter to the Corinthians. That's back in, uh, uh, where am I? Yeah, which is not a part of the Bible. Okay, at some point he had sent a letter, which is not a part of the Bible, that he would travel to Corinth from Ephesus, stay for a while, and then go to Macedonia. After his trip to Macedonia, he intended to return to Corinth for a longer stay before heading to Jerusalem. However, due to the chaotic state of affairs in Corinth, he decided that it would be better for all involved that he instead would forego this first trip to Corinth. Otherwise, he would be compelled to personally speak to them about the issues which are contained right here in this letter, 1 Corinthians, rather than write them. And if he did, it would be a meeting of discipline rather than of loving embrace. In this, he had only the best in mind for all involved, but the Corinthians viewed his actions as a snub. Something wrong? Nobody. Okay, well, you might want to send uh, Jim and, or uh, Sergio an email and just ask him about it. He explains himself fully at several key points in 2 Corinthians concerning this matter. But 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23 gives us a direct statement from Paul's heart concerning his actions. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Okay, that was the point that he was making right there. So uh, let me see, where am I? Life application, we have all felt snubbed at various times in our lives. And we often allow these occurrences to cause rifts between ourselves and the perceived offender. But quite often such snubs are unintentional or misunderstood. It is right, especially among believers, to give others the benefit of the doubt and be willing to listen to the reasons for their actions and then to move on, letting go of the resent resentment that we have harbored. Okay, I'll go ahead and read this first because, oh, you got it, okay. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that I can help you a while. Help with you. Okay, let's do this again. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. There you go. Okay, that's close enough. We'll let that one go. The words Paul writes here are fulfilled in Acts 20 verses 1 through 6. He did go through Macedonia and eventually came to Greece. And he did, in fact, spend three full months there. That's recorded, as I said, in Acts 20. Let me take you there and just read it to you really quickly so we got it. Acts 20. And it says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed, here it is, three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going on ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Okay, Trophimus of Asia. Uh, remember what it says Paul said elsewhere about Trophimus? I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Anyway, he did that. He told Paul to drink wine for his stomach problems, and Epaphroditus almost died for the sake of the gospel. And Paul certainly couldn't heal himself of his own affliction. And so that tells you that the... Uh, deal about faith healing by faith healers is false 
Okay, the Lord heals when he wants to heal. There's nobody that goes out and just claims healing in Jesus' name and claims every or heals everybody. Okay, we've got to be wise and discerning. If the apostle to the Gentiles couldn't heal all of the people that he uh, came across, then obviously it's a precept which is untrue, which is being taught in many churches around the world today. And the uh, verses that uh, Peter writes about, by his stripes you are healed, what's he talking about? His suffering, what sealed our soul. Is, he, is it talking about physical healing or is it talking about something else? Spiritual healing, sin. The entire context of by his stripes we are healed, Peter talks about sin. Sin, 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 sin. By your stripes is has nothing to do with physical healing. Okay? Just a point to throw out. Um, see the name Trophimus and that comes to mind every time I see, you know, it just how people abuse scripture in order to justify things that are not true um let's see here let's uh where was i what verse are we in 16 6 yes okay as you can see from the account that i just read acts 21 through 6 paul's life was directed by events beyond his control and yet he, hello miss garrett good to have you here he adapted to them as they came about in the end, each step was a part of God's greater plan and the events, though surely distressing at the time, were all a part of fulfilling that plan as intended. Okay, let's see here. God is directing us in the same way as well. We may feel that life is coming at us with all kinds of unexpected issues which hamper us from doing our duties for the Lord. And yet the very things which occur are those things which he knew would come about. Nothing is outside of his knowledge and his providential care. Before I read the life application, I would like to say I believe 100% in faith healing. I do not believe in faith healers. And there's a world of difference between the two. I just wanted to get that out because I, I'm sure I get an email on that. We pray for people because the Bible says to do so. People are healed in the New Testament. They walked up and they actually healed people. But it's not a given individual who does it carte blanche all the time, and it is not any individual at any time because our sicknesses and our diseases actually sometimes bring glory to God. That's right. Uh, somebody please tell me how Johnny Erickson Tata, a great person of faith throughout these many years of ministry, is still in a wheelchair. Explain that, Benny Hinn. Okay. Life application, if we can remember that God knows in advance of the trials and difficulties we face, it can help us to mentally accept those things. The difficulty isn't lessened and the trial still exists, but how we are able to cope with it while it is occurring can make all the difference in the world in our own mental state. So let us trust in his foreknowledge and be ready to accept all things that come our way, both good and bad. I know that's a tough pill to swallow at times because, you know, you get emails from people that are really suffering, really struggling with things that are just weighing them down. And it may be a physical, it may be a mental, it may be a family thing, it may be somebody having financial problems, which is just as debilitating as anything else. And we're, we have to accept, you know, the Lord has me in this place for a purpose and I'm going to glorify God through that. And that's been a real theme of Peter that we're going through in the morning right now for the past how many uh uh, morning. So we're I just started uh, 1 Peter 4 yesterday. So I'm in verse 2 and you'll be up there in about eight or nine more days. But I'm telling you, I, I'm so much enjoying the second time through Peter and, and re-commenting on it because it's just such a, a good book. But okay, 16-7. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. 
hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. Where and else is that? What's that? And yeah, and the cricks don't <laughs> rise. Does, I think I might have mentioned that in this class before, but if not, um, the, the yeah, it's creeks. It has nothing to do with a creek rising. Okay, that's not what speaking of. It's the creeks Indians. It was a saying that if the creeks don't rise, means the Indians are coming after you. So, but we get that wrong, and I got it wrong for most of my life yeah. until somehow I came across that. And and uh, yeah, if the creeks don't rise. Um, but somewhere else, what he just said. Um, uh, what verse did you just read? Seven. Okay. Uh, if the Lord permits, where else is James? Very good. Who said that? Oh, I've got two hands hanging up. She's all proud back there. Good job. Yeah. Hey, the Lord willing. That's exactly right. Um, this refers back to verse 5 and Paul's intent to visit the Corinthians as he passed through Macedonia. Rather than merely stopping for a short, hurried visit, he desired to spend a greater amount of time with them. Having stated his intention, he adds in the notable phrase, if the Lord permits. He was aware that his movements were guided by the Lord and that anything could change his plans. In this statement, he is granting the sovereignty of the Lord over his life and actions. James, as she just noted, asks all believers to have this same attitude in matters relating to life. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. I'll give you a Maserati if you can answer it there, uh, Laura. What book of the Bible is the book of James? What book? Is it the second, the 23rd, the 19th? I know. What book in the Bible is it? Okay, you don't get a Maserati. It's the 59th book of the Bible. Okay, she'll never forget that one again. I'll tell you that. Okay, James, uh, uh, Hebrews James. Um, hang on a sec. We got James 4.13. James 4.13. Okay, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. He is using the word Hevel there. He's, he's a Hebrew and he's writing it obviously in Greek, but he is thinking of the word Hevel, which is the name of Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, right? And it's also the word that begins the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity or vapor of vapor or what, however translators want to say it. The word is Hevel, Hevelim. Uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, Hevel means breath, but it's breath that you can see, and it just disappears on a cold day. And that's what, there's no doubt that's what he's thinking about there. He says, um, read that again, even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes, vanishes away. And naming him Abel was a theological point that she had just boasted with the previous son a verse before i have acquired a man with the lord i am working my way back to heaven i have done something i am involved in the process and she realized that it wasn't correct that is not the messiah she had misunderstood what she had heard when she was given the curse and so what does she call her next son vapor he's just a vapor it shows the utterly desperate nature of her wanting to go back to what she had lost okay and that's what he's thinking of here Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is a principle not only for life decisions, though. It is also a principle for learning and growing in our spiritual walk with the Lord. In his instructions, 
to the Hebrews, to the Hebrew audience to whom the apostle was writing, we read these words in Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. That's right, the Lord willing, if God permits. No matter what the issue, we are only granted what the Lord, what the Lord allows. Therefore, if we are hindered in our plans or if we are permitted to execute them, the Lord has granted the outcome. Likewise, if we are slow of learning or if we are a great teacher or preacher, the Lord's hand is what shaped who we are. Therefore, the Lord is to be acknowledged as the one behind all things as he shapes us for his purposes. Yes, I believe in free will. That's what the Bible teaches, but everything is according to the will of the Lord. All right. Life application. What we possess came from God. Therefore, how can we boast over others? Let us be grateful for what we have, not envious of what others have. Let us be willing to give thanks and praise to the Lord for all of it. His hand of wisdom and grace have so placed us. Great stuff. 16.8. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. I don't think we're going to finish this chapter today. I was kind of hoping we would because it'd be a nice way. We're going to have to stop and then start a new book in the middle of next week, I think. But anyway, 16.8. There are often little clues interspersed throughout the book of Acts and the epistles to show us when books were written, where they were written, and so on. The book of 1 Corinthians is known to have been written at Ephesus based on this comment here. Paul was there and decided that he would stay there until Pentecost. Pentecost would have been known to the Jewish believers as the Feast of Shavuot or weeks, weeks, Pentecost, weeks. You got seven weeks, 49 days, and then the 50th day, okay? Weeks, and Shavuot means weeks. So um, from Leviticus 23, Further, the believers, both Jew and Gentile, would know that this was the day of the Holy Spirit descending on the believers in Jerusalem, thus initiating the church age. Unless you're a hyper-dispensationalist, then you don't believe that. Paul will explain in the coming verse why he was to tarry in Ephesus until this point. After that, he would continue with his travels. The period in Acts which this points to is found in Acts chapter 19. It is noted, however, in Acts 20, verse 16, that he amended his plans and decided to arrive in Jerusalem prior to Pentecost. Things kept creeping up in his life, which caused plans to change, but he accepted them and continued on in the understanding that the Lord was directing his feet according to a higher wisdom. Remember when they wanted to go to Macedonia and they, they uh, wanted to go uh, to Asia and a person in Macedonia came to them in a vision and said, come. So they just followed where the Lord led them. Okay. Life application. If you are being obedient to the Lord and seeking his will in your life, then wherever you are is exactly where you are supposed to be. I think you've probably heard that every Sunday morning that you've been in this church. Yes. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And then I, based on whatever book of the Bible we're in, I amend it from there. But he has you where he wants you. He is using you and directing you, even if it might not always seem that way. I know there are times where it seems, Lord, where are you in this? Or what are we supposed to do? He's got you where he wants you. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't be the Lord God. 
You were there because he's got you where he wants you. 16.9. Because a great door for effective work is open to me, there are many who oppose me. Okay, it's so similar. For a great and effective door has opened to me, they put effective before a door instead of after a door because they don't want to be plagiarizing. And then, um, uh, what is it? And there are many adversaries. Okay, here Paul explains the reason why he wanted to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. It is because a great and effective door has been opened to me. The metaphor of a door is common in the New Testament, and it is even seen in the Old, translated as gate. Gate, okay? A gate and a door is the same word in Hebrew at times. Sha'ar would be a gate or a door, okay? There are other words such as the door of the, uh, uh, it's not really a door though, but, you know, the screen, the petach in the, uh, 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 what do you call it? The uh, yeah, the tabernacle, etc. But Sha'ar is a gate; it's a door. And Jesus said in John ten that he is the door or gate. If you go to your translation, it'll say gate in the NIV. Okay, depending on translator's choice of words, because the Hebrew follows like the Greek, and one word will mean the same thing. In Revelation four one, John saw a door. That's right. The same word is used in John ten. Open in heaven at which time he was taken up through it in order to see his vision of the future. It's a picture of Christ being open and you going through rapture. I know people disagree with that. That's fine, but it is a picture of the rapture. The church is mentioned like four jillion times in Revelation 1 through 3. It's the church is who's being addressed, okay? Once again, unless you're a hyper-dispensationalist, but it is the church, the Gentile church. And then in 4.1, he is called up in the spirit through a door, and then from 4-2 until 19-9, the church is never mentioned, not one time. And then who comes back with Christ in 19-10? The church. That's right. Okay. So it is a picture of the rapture, but that's fine. I, if people disagree, that's fine. Just disagree. It's a future. It's not worth arguing over, but the symbolism is very clear in scripture. Okay. Jesus speaks of an open door in Revelation 3.10. And that he's knocking on the door, waiting for it to be opened in Revelation 3.20. Each of these uses carries a spiritual connotation, and Paul uses it in this manner as well. A few other examples of this word are found. We'll go through them. Acts 14.27. All right. Where it says 14.27. Oh, next page, Charlie. 1427, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, I'm in 15, I got to get back to 14. See, I get this dyslexia and I do that all the time. Now, when they had come together and gathered at the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door, that's right, of faith to the Gentiles. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, um, verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Once again, it's a spiritual connotation. All right, and then finally in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, 4, 3, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Yeah. He uses the word in a consistent manner. Opportunities for spreading the gospel are considered a door of opportunity. There's a narrow opening which leads to a large space on the other side. And the only way to get to that large space is to go through the door. The symbolism is elegant. If the door isn't used, then what lies behind it or beyond it remains unchanged. 
But Paul continues with his thought and saying, and there are many adversaries. In his travels, there was always the constant challenge of those who would work against the message he proclaimed. While he was attempting to open doors around him, there were those who sought to keep that door closed. If they could, they would nail it shut in order to keep him and his message out forever. We see that all over in the world today. Despite their efforts, Paul was adamant that he should continue to press forward in order to bring light to those who so desperately need it. If you think of the symbolism, I hinted on it a little bit here, but what is David write about, Lord, you've brought me out to open spaces, okay? There's this place of opening and joy, but it's through a very narrow path or a very narrow door. But there's a wide path that leads to a place of being very confined, okay? The exact opposite happens. You take the wide path and you end up in a confined, narrow place. And if you take the narrow door, you end up in the broad places. It's marvelous symbolism. The Bible is just replete with it. Next time you read through the Bible, think on it as you're reading those passages and you'll, you'll see it. It'll come alive. Life application. In the Bible, words seem to simply be a part of a thought and without any further import, which can actually have great significance. Never stop to contemplate the individual words and what the spiritual meaning behind them is. There is great treasure to be found in word studies because God uses tangible items to teach us spiritual and moral lessons. Everything, if you see the word rock, do a study on the word rock all the way through the Bible, it'll be consistent. It'll be very, very faithfully consistent, all right? All the way through, just pick something, a tree. Oh, I saw a tree there and just follow it through the Bible. You're gonna see all kinds of wonderful examples which are always consistently used, okay? 1610. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. He is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Okay, good job. Earlier in the epistle, Paul had mentioned that Timothy had been sent to the Corinthians. He's reminding them of that now. That is found in 1 Corinthians 4. I'll take you back there really quickly just so we can remember that. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. I'm in 317. Got to get in 4. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Also from the book of Acts, it is known that Erastus joined Timothy on this mission and they also went by way of Macedonia. Let me take you there really quickly. That's Acts chapter 19 and it says there, Acts 19 verse 22. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Everything is very, you line up the what the Bible proclaims in Acts and then you go to the epistles and everything fits beautifully. It's so marvelously done. Paul does say, if in this verse, though, because at times plans changed and in the uncertainty of ancient travel, there were often delays or diversions. There isn't any record of Timothy and Corinth after this, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. No matter what though, if Timothy arrived, Paul implored them to see that he may be with you without fear. Timothy was young, and the times he is recorded shows someone who had a rather timid and somewhat sensitive disposition. You can see that when you read the books of uh, Paul to Timothy. If the Corinthians were willing to argue with and about Paul, how much more intimidating might they be to Timothy? In Corinth, there were headstrong people, people of high society, people of argumentative dispositions and the like. Paul wanted them to ensure that none of such intimidating aspects be directed towards him, not meaning him, Paul, meaning Timothy. And the reason is that he does the work of the Lord as I also do. 
Timothy was young in the faith, but he was strong enough in it to accept mission duties and to carry on the work which Paul required of him. Because he was the apostles' spokesman, Paul wanted the Corinthians to treat him with the respect of the apostles' office. Life application, there are offices within the faith which call out for respect regardless of the age or constitution of the holder of that office. And if they have been entrusted with specific authority, they deserve the respect associated with it. Should charges or accusations of a person in such an office arise, the Bible gives the appropriate measures for them to be considered. Otherwise, the office and the office holder should be afforded the honor they deserve. Okay, 1611. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Okay. <laughs> this is still referring to Timothy. Paul already asked the Corinthians to see that he may be without you without fear. That was the last verse. Not only should he not be intimidated, he shouldn't be looked down on either. Timothy was probably unaware of this kindness which is added into the letter. And we can imagine Paul saying to him, don't worry, you're going to be fine. They'll treat you okay. But to ensure his words were met with like action, he is imploring them to so act. It would be a confidence-building moment in the life of Timothy. After a proper reception and a welcome stay, Paul also implores them to send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me. This is another petition for grace to be bestowed upon him. When Timothy departed Corinth, Paul wanted it to be with a blessing and in a brotherly way. He knew that if these things didn't come about, Timothy might be ruined as a future leader, something I'm sure everybody here has seen either at work or in church or somewhere. By ensuring that he was cared for, he would then more readily accept future challenges in the mission field or in other ministries, and we know he did. Finally, this verse notes, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. As the New King James Version translates this, it sounds as if Paul is with others, and together they are awaiting the arrival of Timothy. If this is a proper translation, he has added it in to deter the Corinthians from anything but bestowing the highest kindness on Timothy, knowing that he will be meeting with Paul and so any negative actions or attitudes would come directly to him. Other translations read this verse as, I am expecting him along with the brothers. This would mean that Paul was expecting the arrival of both Timothy and those who were with him. If this is a correct rendering, then it would add even more weight to Paul's request for kindness to Timothy. Not only would he have to report, have a report of the Corinthians' conduct, but it would be supported by those he traveled with. Either way, by adding the ending comment, he is ensuring that those in Corinth actually treat Timothy in a kind manner and that he would hear about it if they didn't. Okay, life application. Just because someone may seem young, timid, or uninformed in certain areas of life, it does not mean that they are incapable of doing the Lord's work. Everyone has been given gifts which they can use to his glory. We should never despise their weaknesses, but rather exalt their strengths. Yep. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to go to you with the brother... He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12, Apollos was noted as one of those who are the factions within Corinth, which they identified. Paul is including this verse especially to show that he had in no way hindered Apollos in coming to Corinth. 
and that he had fact, in fact strongly urged him to come. See, there's these factions. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Paul. And Paul is making sure they know that he did nothing to hinder him from coming. Okay, because it would just be that much more factions by the time Apollos got there. Why weren't you here? Did Paul do something? And he's trying to cure every one of these ills that's going on in this church with this letter. Okay, it is probable that his presence was requested in the letter that precipitated Paul's letter to them. That's back in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, where he's been addressing point after point after point from that letter since then. If he didn't come, some may blame Paul for hindering him. But this verse shows that it was not the case. Despite the possible request by the Corinthians for Apollos to visit, Paul's urging him to go. He was quite unwilling to come at this time. The reason for this seems to be that he didn't want to cause further dissensions at Corinth. He and Paul probably read their letter together and said, what a hornet's nest. Oh my goodness. From that, Paul wrote this letter of response in order to answer their many questions. By not coming with the letter, it would give the Corinthians time to consider its words and to work towards harmony rather than increased divisions. It is in this, it is notable of Apollos that he restrained himself from going. Further, he promised them that he will come when he has a convenient time. At some point, probably when news that the church was working together harmoniously, he would join them and minister to them. He's, Apollos is not a dummy. He's hanging out, waiting for things to get fixed up. In all, Paul's words concerning Apollos show that there was a friendship between them, that they both had the best intent in mind for the church at Corinth. Life application here. Reading how Paul and Apollos have handled the divisions at Corinth can give us insights into how to handle these same type of things in our own churches. Unfortunately, if pastors, elders, or others in authority promote such divisions, they really can't get out of hand. It is important to try to not participate in these factions and to be aware of how, to, how detrimental that can be. 1613. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be okay. strong. All right. This is a little shorter. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Paul has laid out his doctrine, explained his intentions, and given his directions for the coming gift, which is to be taken to Jerusalem. Now he immediately turns to final exhortations, beginning with, watch! This is a common sentiment found in the Bible. Ezekiel was de designated a watchman. Jesus exhorted the disciples to watch on several occasions, and Paul follows along with this same admonition. It is an exhortation he uses elsewhere as well such as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Next, he tells them to stand fast in the faith. Five other times, Paul uses the same term, stand fast, for various reasons. One of them parallels this thought right here, which is concerning doctrine in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. After this, he tells them to be brave. This is the Greek word antrizo. It means act like men. It is its only use in the New Testament, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint or the translation of the 70, does use it. Notably, it is seen in Joshua chapter 1, 
and several times, uh, several times in Joshua chapter one, such as in Joshua one verse nine. Let me take you there really quickly. And it says in Joshua 1, 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, and do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All right. These and similar exhortations are found all around in the Bible. They implore us to always be alert and careful. Jesus gives quite a few of them to the seven churches of Revelation and also towards the end of Revelation. For those in Corinth, like many churches today, they are especially important because of spiritual lethargy, which permeates the church. As John Chrysostom notes, in Christian matters, the church is drowsy, unstable, effeminate, effeminate I can't pronounce that word very well, and factious. Effeminate, thank you, and factious. Only by being on constant guard will we steer clear of disaster as we await the return of our righteous Lord. And right in the uh, uh, introduction to this week's sermon, the same thought, I, you'll hear that again, it, uh, the same thought, uh, quote by Joseph Benson, and then I'll talk about what he says. Life application, as a church, when we think we have it made, we should probably step back and evaluate where we really stand. Reading and taking to heart the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation is a good way of making a personal evaluation of where any individual congregation stands at any time. Let us heed the words of the Lord and be watchful concerning our spiritual state. 14. Do everything in love. That's it. Okay, this one says, let all that you do be done with love. So, oh, yeah, so they really, was yours was much shorter. And they, they put in the italicized words there. Uh, let's see here. Without it would be, let all done, let all be done with love. So kind of close. Okay, uh, let's see here. Paul wrote extensively in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. I went to a wedding last Saturday, and of course, they quoted 1 Corinthians 13. Good, good passage. In 1 Corinthians 14, 1, he admonished us to follow the way of love. Now his words expand on our relationships once again by commanding us to let all that you do be done with love. And whatever we do, we should consider love first. But this isn't the sappy love that is carelessly tossed around by the world at large. Sometimes love involves punishment. It is unloving to allow people to follow paths of self-destruction to abuse themselves or others, or to leave crimes unpunished. Love, first and foremost, must be a love of God and of his commandments. If these are followed, then it would be unloving to condone immorality, right? An example of this is the modern concept of accommodating homosexual behavior and calling it loving. This is exactly the opposite of true love. Such behavior results in mental disorders, broken lives, and separation from God, which will lead to eternal hell. Therefore, it cannot be loving to open the church to this behavior if it is morally unacceptable. It is unloving towards God to allow capital crimes to go unpunished or to reduce the sentence which is deserved according to his standard. Boy, is that coming up in a marvelous sermon. In about four weeks or so, the uh, high priest, the death of the high priest, what happens in the cities of refuge, the death? Oh, those are some pictures of Christ in that particular sermon. You're not going to believe it. Wow. Unbelievable. Okay. Capital crimes. Such actions will only cause others to see and not fear. Society will then inevitably grow more and more brazen and crime will inevitably become worse and more common. Such a scene 
right here in our society in ever-increasing amounts because we fail to offer godly love, which is based on obedience to his commands. On the positive side of this commandment, we are to show mercy, be gracious, be willing to forgive when asked of it, and so on. These are considered loving actions because they are attributes which God also displays. All of those of or all of who we are should be directed towards godly love as is portrayed in scripture. And finally, Paul's words are above all a note to believers about their relationships with other believers. This then is in line with Peter's similar thought, which is found in 1 Peter 4 verse 8. I'll be typing this up in six more days. Okay, so we're going to see what Peter has to say in 1 Peter 4 verse 8. One more page. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Life application, our command to do everything in love must be taken in a biblical context or our actions will often be anything less than truly loving. Let us abhor sin, not allowing it to enter into our congregations, and at the same time, let us direct our affections towards building others up and being kind and gracious in our dealings with them. 15. You know that the household of, household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers. Okay, yeah, they kind of stop right in the middle of there. Same in this one. It's, it leaves you hanging. They leave you hanging differently in this one, but they do leave you hanging. I'm glad you said Achaia correctly. Most people say Achaia or something. Yeah, Achaia. Yeah, just yeah. like Caiaphas. Uh, like that's right. Or Caiaphas. That's right. Okay. Paul now makes a firm request to the brethren concerning the household of Stephanus. They are mentioned as having been baptized by Paul in 1 Corinthians 16. His thought here begins with an urging, and then it gives the who and the why concerning the urging. Only in the next verse will the what of the urging detail. But there's also an unstated possible reason for Paul's words. It seems from verse 17 that Stephanus was one of the ones who carried the ill report of what was going on in Corinth to Paul. The circumstances of that report is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read you that so you remember what happened there. 1 Corinthians 1 verse, I think I said chapter 11, I meant chapter 1 verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. If this is so, then Paul's words are intended to look at the devotion of Stephanus to the Corinthians and not to any supposed backbiting or tattling. The issues Paul has been discussing have needed to be addressed in order to maintain right doctrine and also purity within the congregation. There is nothing out of order in reporting such infractions. If Stephanus was a part of this, Paul's words make all the more sense. He notes now that the household of Stephanus were the first fruits of Achaia. This alone shows a dedicated soul. The first to come forward is always the one who steps into the unknown. After the first, the others will often naturally follow. And so he set an example which was emulated by others. But he didn't stop there. He and his family devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. The work of this noble family with the heart of others within the faith uh, of this noble family was with the heart of the others within the faith. If he was a member of Chloe's household who carried the news of the failings of the Corinthians to Paul, it was for their benefit, not their condemnation. 
Because of this, Paul is urging that they be so recognized for their efforts. Life application, those who minister to the saints are often those who aren't even in leadership positions. It's good and proper to recognize such people and to return the favor when possible. Such actions should never be just a one-way street. Um, Burke, he vacuums the church every single Thursday. Good job, Burke. See, that's not a one-way street. <laughs> Thank you, Burke. Go ahead. Question. Uh, Stephanus, is yes. he the household that, that um, Paul baptized? Yes. Okay. Yes, that, that is them. Absolutely. Verse 16, 16. Okay, uh, we're getting past I urge you brothers <laughs> to submit to such of the such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Okay, good deal. And this one says labors with us. Taken together along with the previous verse, we will get a better sense of Paul's intent. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Ahia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. He wants those in Corinth to see their necessary duty because of the voluntary duty of another. Just as the household of Stephanus has devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, so they should likewise submit to such. Even though Stephanus was probably a slave belonging to Chloe's household, he was a free man in Christ. In this status, Paul is asking those free Corinthians to submit themselves to him. In Christ, there are truly no distinctions which the world notices. Hence, we get a better sense of Paul's words to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, where he says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One of the most abused verses in all of the New Testament, along with do not judge and a couple others. What he is saying is that positionally in Christ, there is no difference. There is a distinction or there's no distinction, but there is a difference. He could not have written that there is no Jew and Gentile unless there were Jews and Gentiles. Further, he couldn't have said that unless he said there is neither male nor female. I guarantee you 2000 years later, I could point at every one of you and tell if you are a male or a female, okay? We still have the distinctions or the differences, but there's no distinction in our salvation. That's a highly misused verse there in order to justify what is otherwise unjustifiable by Paul's other letters, okay? There's, no there's yes, well, there's no distinction. That's right, We uh, the salvation is the same for all in Christ. There's no, uh, you can be a slave, you can be a free, and you have to obey your master as a slave, and yet that slave may be the head of a congregation if he's a pastor of it, okay? That, that is what that is speaking of. It's a verse you really have to take very carefully. This is the reality which is found in this new life in which we live. Those who minister in the Lord are to be given the honor of that ministry, regardless of their worldly position. This includes slaves such as Stephanus, and as Paul says, to everyone who works and labors in the service of Christ. Life application. There are some very fine Bible teachers who have day jobs that might seem lowly. Janitors, electricians, farmers, or grocery baggers may be great theologians willing to share their knowledge with others. If so, they should be given both respect and gratitude. All right, now we're in verse 17. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Okay, 
These three who came to Paul at Ephesus were probably the ones chosen to carry the letter referenced in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, which we've been discussing all the way since then. They traveled together until they reached Paul and probably had a good discussion as they reviewed the words of the letter. They also must have included discussions concerning the divisions of the church mentioned so often by Paul. At the same time, the fellowship with Paul and their ability to accept his counsel would have encouraged him. He knew he had to travel to Corinth, and he knew that problems existed there. This probably caused him to anguish, as a father would over a child that had such problems. With their arrival and their working together over these issues, he was given a sense of comfort. The words, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, seem to imply a rebuke and are probably better rendered as the ESV says it, because they have made up for your absence. It's much, much better rendering, I think, based on the Greek. In other words, Paul felt the absence and the miles between them, which kept him from providing the sound counsel that they needed. With the coming of these three, the miles melted away, and with them went the frustrations that he had felt. Rather than a rebuke, this is a grateful and filling comment made by Paul to his beloved church. Life application, I've been trying to get through this and we're not gonna finish it. I've tried, I've skipped a lot of comments that have come to my head and I've read fast and yeah, we'll finish one more verse and that's all we're gonna get. I've tried my best, but I just, we can't. Okay, life application, sometimes only the presence of another can cut through one's loneliness and frustration. If you perceive someone as having difficult times and you can personally visit them, then this is often the preferred option. Surely nothing can replace human contact and a smile from a friend. Okay, I went to visit my Jewish friend yesterday who has cancer and I called him and he's too sick for me to come, so I didn't go. So, but you, you wanna go visit your friends when you can. Okay, 18, and that's probably gonna be your last verse. For they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Okay, this one says, therefore, acknowledge such men. Okay, by knowing, uh, still speaking of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, who had come to Paul with the news of those in Corinth, he notes that they refreshed my spirit. Paul carried with him the thought of the churches he had established and those he had come to know. He certainly wondered how they fared, grieved when they strayed, and rejoiced as they pursued the Lord. Hearing about those in Corinth was therefore a refreshing thing, even if much of the news was less than wonderful. By knowing where there were trials or dysfunctions, he could set them on a right course. This is exactly the purpose of writing this letter. But this wasn't just a one-way street. Not only was he refreshed by their coming, but their spirit was as well. He would carry the letter back, which would answer their questions Tell them of how he was and direct them in how to handle the divisions which are arisen within the church. The anxieties and suspicions that were felt on both sides would be quelled through this encounter. And because these three were willing to leave their home and travel to Paul in order to have these things come about, Paul asked them to therefore acknowledge such men. Missionaries travel to places others do not. They carry a message which is there for the refreshing of spirits. Musicians often travel with gospel songs intended to uplift churches they encounter. Evangelists travel spreading their message as they go. These and others should be acknowledged for their efforts. Life application, and what I'm going to do next week, or actually two weeks from now, because I can't start another book. We have to have the book separated for YouTube. So 
I will figure something to do after we finish 1 Corinthians to finish a Bible class. I'll, I'll think of something and type something up for you. I don't know what it'll be yet. We could do the ducks again. That's a good idea. Okay, maybe we'll do that. Um, in the church, there are a host of duties which need to be accomplished in order to get the message of Jesus Christ out. Each person can do something, but those who bear the heaviest of burdens should be given the highest of praise. Be sure to thank those who minister in various ways, acknowledging them for their efforts. Okay, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to do this. And uh, we did not finish the book today, and that was a little hurried. But uh, in the end, there's a reason for it. Maybe next week or two weeks from now, something will come about that'll uh, help somebody with instruction that they need. And Lord, we just thank you for this marvelous book, this uh, wonderful word you've given us. And we thank you for every good blessing that you've blessed us with in our hearts and in our souls. And Lord, we certainly thank you for the chance to meet here, to fellowship here, and to discuss your word. And I pray that anybody that uh, plans on coming this Sunday, that they would be uh, safe until they do, and that the streaming would be okay for those that attend online, and that those who are going elsewhere will be blessed wherever they go, as long as they go somewhere to honor and worship you and to fellowship with other believers. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we, the reason why we have to finish on time is because we cannot go over a certain time frame without it causing grief for the web guy. And so we have to finish within an hour and a half. Otherwise, we could have just stayed a few more minutes. But. Right. Okay, let me back this up and we'll say goodbye to the folks online. Are they there? Did he say they're yeah, there? Okay, good. 50 okay, uh, why did that not work? Okay, that's not working again, so I have to be careful. And um, same thing happened as last week. Now, um, where did this go? Um, okay, that didn't work. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I've got to remember how to do this properly. Turn this off.